Hello and welcome to Film Exploration with Asher and today I'll be continuing my in-depth look into 80s films and for episode 2 we shall be talking about the 1986 John Hughes classic Ferris Bueller's Day Off starring Matthew Broderick, Alan Ruck, Mia Sara and Jennifer Grey. You may notice with a lot of movies, and now that we've grown up a little bit, you'll start to see different eras of movies will tend to reminisce about previous eras. This sort of formula does work, and it's pleasing to watch because the previous decades to ours is still kind of fresh in our memory, so we can relate to it. And anything, it creates that sort of nostalgia with us as the audience members. So you do find with a lot of films now they're doing this and have been doing this, where they set the movie in the previous decades or even a couple of decades before. I mean, a few examples... Back to the Future was made in the 80s and it's set primarily in the 50s. Uh, it's a Wonderful Life was made in the 40s and that's set in the 20s. Even TV shows do the sort of same thing with this sort of formula. Like the 70s shows was made in the 2000s and so of course set in the 70s. And you have Black Mirror episodes like San Junipero, which takes a great look at the 80s. And this has now sort of evolved after the millennium and it's almost kind of a, it's kind of a trend specifically looking into the 2010s where they've sort of reminisced heavily on the 80s and not just setting the story there but applying real detail and accuracy into portraying the costumes the movie theaters the drive-thrus and just other nostalgic throwbacks uh, throwbacks to the 80s and the attention to detail and creating a past decade in contemporary tv shows or films has become something of a thing now like i said almost a trend there's no surprise why films and tv shows like it and stranger things are very popular and have grossed heavily at the box office because for our generation it holds that certain degree of experience in terms of homesickness and we understand the 80s in terms of where they were at the time a simpler time where there was no internet or mobile phones and it's sort of attractive to watch because how our lives now are sadly in a way dependent on these internets and you know mobile phones and tablets these kind of films sell tickets and from my earlier examples like back to the future the 70 shows black mirrors stranger things um it they are extremely successful in terms of the box office and in popularity, mainly due to this reason of setting it to this not-too-distant pass. And this style has been happening for almost a century now, more evidently in the adaptations of, you know, like Ready Player One, which is all about the 80s references and, you know, movies and just a big throwback to the entire decade. And you can probably find evidence of this every year now in modern filmmaking. I mean, what was that last year? Um... Tarantino's Just Once Upon a Time in Hollywood heavily set at the end of the 60s. So you can see this happen in every decade where we feel the need to stop and just take a look back for a second. And this sells because people like to look back at a time when maybe things were a bit simpler or easier. And this sort of brings me nicely onto Ferris Bueller's Day Off. This film is set in the 80s and made in the 80s. However, you can't watch this film and not feel all the things I just described up there. It's sad to watch this film because it's so pure and this film just about relates to everyone. The whole movie is not about defusing a bomb, it's not about saving a damsel in distress, it's just about one guy's mission to skip school for a day and enjoy his day off. It's simple, it's bold and it has created this sort of rush of nostalgia when you put this classic film on. You remember what it was like to skip school and or, or just even thinking about skipping school, to have no other worries in the world, to not worry about bills or car insurance or paying for mortgages or what was happening in the world or stupid viruses caused in China. You just had tunnel vision when you were a kid and this film is pure. There is not one single bad bone in it. There is no joke made at minorities or at other people's expenses. It is just a genuine comedy with a simple goal of a teenager. 
This, of course, was one of only eight films that the famous John Hughes wrote and directed. John Hughes was the man that introduced us to the American high school genre, and he showed that it had a mini-society within. He showed us for the first time that this genre, that was despised by Hollywood, could become a legacy for films to come. It would venture out on its own to become one of the most important genres to exist. John Hughes believed in the intelligence and the common sense of teenagers, despite the bad press Hollywood would give teens in films prior to the 80s. He showed that kids were going through their own problems even before adulthood. He showed that things weren't a walk in the park for all teenagers. Teenagers had these identities and he created these stereotypes and he introduced how teens were having identity crises and even showed how vulnerable they all really were despite this exterior confidence they all showed. I mean, the Brat Pack was formed by John Hughes spawning from 16 Candles. He basically stunned Hollywood by making this teen genre a big thing. His films all tend to explore this roll call of surging hormones and frustrated adolescence. I mean, if you haven't seen these films, you're just letting the best in life go by. I mean, 16 Candles, Breakfast Club, which is one of my favourite films, Weird Science, Pretty in Pink, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, which I'm talking about, and Some Kind of Wonderful. I think he wrote and directed all of these classics, but two of them, I think Pretty in Pink and Some Kind of Wonderful, he wrote, but he didn't direct them. But you can clearly see the expression of John Hughes and what he was trying to portray in the name of teenagers everywhere. John Hughes' introduction to what the teen genre would become, it was a milestone in the 80s and probably one of the only things that came out in the, 90, uh, the 80s sorry, that was actually historic in terms of cinema. He even lost interest in teen genre, not knowing that the eight films he did would be enough to create this eye-opener in this genre for 30 years to come. After the 80s, he started writing films for younger audiences and he wrote Home Alone and Baby's Day Out, but I think over time... These 80s films he did in a short time, especially in Breakfast Club, Pretty in Pink and Ferris Bueller's Day Off, have fundamentally survived in terms of this nostalgic quality that it brings you to when you're watching it. I'm going to talk a bit about Ferris Bueller in terms of the plot, and it's very simple. To sum up, Ferris Bueller is loved. He's your typical teenager, and he does everything under the sun to skip school on this one sunny Chicago day, and he manages to drag his best friend Cameron, played by Alan Ruck, and his love interest Sloane, played by Mia Sara, along for this legendary day off, which in a way is a great tour guide for the city of Chicago of what to go see. So if you're going to Illinois or Chicago at some point, give this movie a go. It's a pretty good tour guide for it. Anyway, of course, like I said, this film is lighthearted, but it still manages to create some sort of antagonistic roles in the film in terms of the principal and the older sister, played by Jennifer Grey. Now, what's great about these two characters specifically is what we is because we love Ferris for what he's doing, which is skipping school. So we're immediately sucked into his charm by almost respecting his rebellious act to succeed, and therefore immediately, out of no fault of our own, disliking Rooney and even the older sister, played by Jennifer Grey. The principal and even his older sister are these goody two-shoes and are actually, you know, respecting authority. And this is pure genius from John Hughes because Rooney is acting in, the, in the, sort of the correct manner and as an authoritative figure. We are joining Ferris on this rebellious act, therefore easily giving the middle finger to authority. You tend to favour character personality over morals in movies all the time. And, I mean, it happens in um, the Fast and the Furious franchise. I mean, they steal cars, but yet you're still on their side. Now, what's great about Jennifer Grey as well as, you know, is she's sort of this moral compass of this movie because she hates Ferris and for good reason. He's loved and everyone just respects him despite his obvious disrespect for school and authorities. And yet when it comes to the end, when Rooney finally has the moment to end Ferris and prove his deceptions, 
Jennifer Grey, a teenager and older sister, doesn't grasp him up. She chooses to stick to the lesser of two evils, which is her younger brother. And I find that another little gem in terms of loyalty amongst teenagers and even family, because when you're a teenager, it's confusing time and adults almost never understand you or at the time you think they don't. And it really portrays what teenagers are all about. And that's what they're all going through, some kind of hurt or issue. And what John Hughes does is bring these opposite stereotypes together because it's as different as they are they're going through the same stuff at the same time and it's this companionship that he brings and he does so more visually and obviously in a breakfast club but you see this resonate in this movie because ferris and cameron are best friends but polar opposites in terms of personality and popularity this for me was matthew broderick's film this movie would not have existed without him he brings that charm and the right amount of cockiness to really make us love and root for him through this endeavour in sidestepping all the authoritative landmines and his parents and the school and have his day off all to himself. Of course, this film wouldn't have worked if Broderick didn't have anyone to play off and Alan Ruck kind of introduces this kind of hipster quality in Cameron. And they were actually both friends before this movie, so their chemistry on set was actually quite easy to pull off. There's always been this fan fiction about this theory that Ferris isn't real and that Ferris is a figment of Cameron's imagination. Cameron, of course, is shown as generally the complete opposite of Ferris and that he, it's actually only him and Sloan are enjoying the day off in Chicago. It was Cameron singing Twist and Shout at the parade. It was Cameron deceiving his parents and the teachers at the school. And he is imagining himself as Ferris because that's how he wants to be, which makes it a very interesting theory, although never confirmed true or false by John Hughes. The theory does, however, mimic what Edward Norton does in Fight Club because he too imagined, he sort of imagines Brad Pitt as someone he wants to be like and trying to become more confident. But my point in this connection isn't the imaginary characters. It's that both movies break the fourth wall. And I think Ferris Bueller was one of the earlier films to do this with such success. The fourth wall is a theatre term. And for those who don't know what it means, it's the space which separates a performer, a performance from an audience. The fourth, the fourth part refers to this invisible divide between the audience and the performer or the camera and the movie. What breaks this is when someone talks directly to the audience or the camera, which is what Ferris does in this movie in such a charming way. And this another, and this another thing that added to this classic to make a very important film in history, let alone in comedy. Obviously, we've seen this happen in more films, most notably in uh, House of Cards with Kevin Spacey and sometimes controversially so in Funny Games with Naomi Watts. It adds another unique experience to the audience through this cinematic style of filmmaking. John Hughes spent no more than a week writing a script for this movie, which really demonstrates the idea that he was really in full force and that the idea was simple and had no reason to be complicated. And John trusted his own execution to delivering this to the world, creating probably one of the most feel-good movies ever made. Now, the confidence in terms of the speed of this creation of this script reflected also on set with John allowing loads of things to be thought up on the day, including Matthew talking to the camera instead of narrating. Matthew Broderick said he couldn't play the clarinet. There's a scene where he's playing the clarinet and he says I haven't had one lesson which is hilarious um, and he played the clarinet and John asked him can you play it and he goes yeah I can play it and um, John thought okay let's, let's just put it in the movie and it turns out Matthew Broderick couldn't play the clarinet at all so they left the scene in the movie and they just and John Hughes loved it and the bit where Matt says never had one lesson is completely improvised by Matt and the iconic parade scene where Matt is miming, twist and shout in downtown Chicago was a funny story. Kenny Ortega uh, came in to choreograph the scene, um, who later, I mean, if you don't know who he is, he's like a really famous choreographer. He, he later went on to direct Hocus Pocus and the high school musical films. Very well known in Hollywood now. Um, he choreographed uh, Michael Jackson and a few things as well. Anyway, so they shot this scene twice over the course of two days, once with the close-ups of Matt 
uh, with only a few extra extras just dotted around. And the second day, they needed basically all of Chicago. And they weren't sure, they didn't really have the budget to do this, to get these many extras to, you know, go around Chicago and sing this uh, song. So what they did was they put flyers around Chicago to say that they'll be filming this and we need around 2,000 people to be screaming and dancing. And to their surprise, there were people crammed into those streets of Matthew Broderick when he was singing it. It was like a concert. And they made sure they did all this on the first take to sort of grab this pure intensity from the crowd from hearing the song for the first time. It's one of those scenes that you're afraid may survive beyond the movie. But if anything, the movie has sort of gained momentum through the years as a classic. And this scene now is just an added extra to this iconic movie. Now, if you ever watched an advert for this movie or a trailer for this movie, you'll always see the scene where um, Ben Stein is the economic teacher goes Bueller 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 and um, he made a really uh, heartwarming comment about this movie actually he said it I think it was not so long ago it was in 2015 and he said it's something very basic in human life a wish to get away escape responsibility and have a day where your day is every fantasy you've ever had and I just think he, he you know he perfectly said that of course this movie is about a period of life that is recognizable to almost everyone the thing that's extremely relatable about Ferris is he, you know, he's that kid that everyone wants to be. He's pretty much the coolest kid in school. And at the time of being at school, that would be your main concern. That would be the ultimate goal, to be the coolest kid there. There's many reasons why this film touches the soul, and some are hard to explain. But for, but for more, I would say it's just the, you know, it's, it's just the, the modern coming-of-age story. And the movie sort of exploits one of the biggest you know, mottos in history, Carpe Diem seize the day a motto that i hold very close to my heart it's hard sometimes not to take advantage of time because we're stuck in constant routine with you know our adult lives we have bills to pay we have responsibilities and we've somewhat burdened ourselves with all of that okay so you know the movie was a little over the top sometimes it was made in the 80s i can accept that i can accept that rooney crosses the line by breaking an entry to catch out ferris and his you know his development as a character really doesn't go anywhere but the fact is the charm of this story and of Ferris is he wants to live the way he wanted to with no one to stop him and to take full responsibility for it too, just to have this day off. I mean, we could all use a day off, couldn't we? Sometimes we just utilise it properly, not like Ferris does in the movie. I mean, if we use our time correctly, if we put our energy in the right places, we can do whatever we want, but we just don't think to do it. And something else that Ben Stein says is he said that this movie is never going to die. He says this is to comedies what Gone with the Wind is to epics. And the sad thing is we know as the audience, we know that we're not going to be able to do this as much fun as we could have done it back when we were teenagers. We know at some point we're going to have to take responsibilities. We're going to have to take on jobs, not risk our careers or marriages for the risk of a, a, a good day off. However, as Ferris Bueller says, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you could miss it. And from that note, I shall conclude today's episode on Ferris Bueller. And thank you for listening to this podcast. I hope it's opened your eyes to why this film is really important. Less than a week to write it, 30 years, and it's still being talked about. It's a monumental movie, and I think it just sort of brings back that child in us, that that, rebe- that rebellious side to us that we once had when we were a kid, before we had jobs, before we had responsibilities, before we had commitments. It's just a really good movie to sort of look back on for a bit. Anyways, you can find me on Instagram, Film Exploration AH, all lowercase, all one word. And thank you again for listening to Film Exploration with Ash Hurry.